0: Great to see you this morning, and uh, as we have been talking over the past couple of months uh, we 're entering this week into a pretty busy season conference wise uh, this uh, weekend i 'll be kicking off the hope for our time uh, times conference out in Indian Wells, uh, California. Uh, Pastor David is going to be out there as well as uh, Dr. Ed Hindson, Dr. Andy Woods, a great lineup of speakers. So keep us in prayer for that. And in two weeks beyond that, we'll be up uh, back again in Abbotsford, British Columbia. Beautiful town, uh, conference held every year uh, for Hope for Today or through Hope for Today, Pastor David again. And then on the 16th of July, I leave for Australia, uh, Perth, and then off to Melbourne, and then behind that, Auckland, New Zealand, on uh, August 4th, uh, or 3rd, rather. And Amir Sarfani and I will be uh, doing a series of prophecy conferences there. So, very busy time. uh, Covet and appreciate uh, your prayers. Uh, You will be well fed uh, while I'm gone. Pastor Mike is going to be here doing a two-part series on the 21st and 28th of July, and then August 3rd. Uh, Don Stewart is going to be here, uh, bring, or August 4th rather, bringing a message for you. So it will be a wonderful time while we're away. So, or I'm away, I should say. Um, you know, I love doing these conferences, but for the first time in 42 years of marriage, I'm going to be away from Terry for 20 days. And, uh, not so excited about that, but, um, God is good. Amen. Well, this Wednesday night will be in 1 Samuel 24. I hope you make an effort to come on out. We've had a great time in our study of 1 Samuel, some great insights for us very practically, and that will be the case again this Wednesday. But this morning we've got another doozy in front of us, so would you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. Now, it's been a couple of weeks, so I'll remind you that we found something rather curious In our verses as we examine the last portion of Acts 18 last time or two weeks ago, we used it as kind of a springboard into both our topic and into the text. And what we were told in Acts 18, 18 to 21, that Paul had remained a good while and then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. Now he had his hair cut off at Sincrea. For he had taken a vow, and he came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Now when they'd asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. Now we'll see his return to Ephesus in our text this morning. But what we noted was that Paul was going to keep the feast of passover and that's why he left because he had taken a vow and we noted the vow was the Nazarite vow and it had some conditions that were to be met for a prescribed period of time including not cutting the hair refraining from drinking any wine or going near a dead body and when the time period ended The tradition was to go and uh, at the Passover and offer the hair that was cut off as a burnt offering with the sacrifices of the feast day. Now we noted that the Nazarite vow was a tradition in an effort to show a person's complete consecration unto God. Now, some commentators said, well, Paul was really having a hard time transitioning from Judaism to Christianity. And others said, well, it also showed that Paul just wasn't fully mature in the Lord, feeling the need to uh, carry out this vow. Well, if you remember, we looked at verses uh, 14 or five through eight of Romans 14, where Paul said, one person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in other people's minds. No, in what? In his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day, to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, say it please. We are the Lord's. Now, Paul wasn't having trouble freeing himself from Judaism, nor was he showing some uh, element of spiritual immaturity. Paul was expressing his commitment and consecration to the Lord through a long held tradition. Yet, the backdrop really, I think, for Paul's actions is found in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23, where Paul said, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Now this is why Paul took the vow, and this is obviously his motivation. Now, we have found him in every city, even though he was the apostle to the Gentiles, heading straight for the synagogue. He did this time after time after time as we have traveled with him on his missionary journeys thus far through the book of Acts. Now, some criticize Paul for this vow. And really what we learned is that Paul didn't force this vow on anyone else. He went as an object or an act of worship, if you will, and consecration. And therefore our lessons last time were these. We were concerned or addressed rather the issue that good traditions can become bad doctrine by making them requirements. Now, Paul wasn't saying you have to take a Nazarite vow too if you really want to be a fully consecrated Christian. And we made the point of application that we need to be careful as well about saying this is how church has to be done. This is the style of music that has to be played. These are the things that have to be done in this order and all that. And saying, if you don't honor these traditions, then you're outside of the faith. And there's a lot of that going on today, but none of that goes on here. I'm glad you said amen there. Now, we also noted that one tradition common among all Christians should be blessing others. This is part of our life experience as believers. We are to be a blessing to other people, even as Apollos was to those whom he encountered, and Paul obviously also. Now, we lastly made the observation that every Christian, say every Christian. Every Christian should respect and honor the word of God. And we'll look at that a little more fully this morning. Now, if you remember, our message was titled The One Thing, and we looked at three things that are part of the one thing. And the one thing is we have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, who has paid in full for our sins. Now, our last chapter has caused some debate among Christians, as we mentioned just uh, in our introduction here. But the truth is, Our chapter this morning has moved beyond debate and it's flat out caused division and discord for centuries within the body of Christ. And that is because of one question posed in verse 2 that says, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they, the twelve will encounter this morning, said to him... We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now, for many today, there's an instant divide as to what this means and can be interpreted as. And there are two main schools of thought regarding this issue. Now, this morning, we're going to introduce a third because we need to remember the most important thing about studying Scripture is context. We have to understand what's before and what comes after in order to get a glimpse of what is actually the proper interpretation or at least a possibility of it. Now, there's no need for division over this subject, but the two interpretations are these. One group says... There is a baptism of the Holy Spirit that is separate from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. Now, there is even a subgroup of this particular belief or interpretation that says the indwelling of the Holy Spirit can actually actually be separate from regeneration or the moment that you are born again. Now, the other group says there's no such thing as a second blessing. You get everything you're gonna get at the moment of salvation. And no one can be saved and not be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, what this means basically is what we have seen thus far with Apollos and the 12 men we're going to meet today is the interpretation that these people were not Christians because they had an unawareness of the Holy Spirit. And as I said, we're going to consider a third option for interpreting this passage this morning, which leads to our title today, which is simply, To Be Continued. Our title this morning is To Be Continued, and we'll explain that as we go. Our title is not To Be Continued, our title is To Be Continued. That clear it up? Now, let me explain it through Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until when? The day of Jesus Christ. God is continuing to work on us. We are continuing to pursue him and to come to a greater depth and understanding of his greatness and majesty. Now, we're going to offer some reasons this morning as to why it is possible that both camps or both lines of thinking are maybe a bit off, And the fact is, their reasoning seems to be uh, forcing something into the text. And we need to realize the general principle that there is an ongoing work in all of our lives that God is doing. No one understands everything about the Bible the day they get saved. Some people think they do, but they don't. Amen? And listen, no one is even capable of fulfilling everything that God has called them to do immediately and Uh, at the moment of regeneration even though they are completely and permanently saved. The work of God is to be continued in all of us until the day of Jesus Christ. So let's jump in this morning and see if we can maybe clear up some of this murkiness uh, created by interpretations of these verses. Our verses this morning are going to be Acts 19 1 through 10 so would you stand and read them with me please. Acts 19 1 through 10. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And Lord, we are thankful for this opportunity this morning to maybe uh, bring some clarity to an issue that uh, so many are dogmatic on either side of the coin. And Lord, we pray that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying. Let the text speak for itself. And Lord, may we go our way today more excited about learning more about you than we ever have before and also, Lord, with a deeper passion for those who are lost and perishing around us. Bring us to that end, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the first of the three things we'll consider this morning are going to come from the opening three verses. And this is where the arguments are established that these men were not Christians at all. And it begins with the fact that disciples does not imply a born-again believer. The word disciple actually means a learner. Now in John eight 31, we're told that Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. So there's a condition to being a disciple that is a true disciple of Jesus, and that is abiding or continuing in his word. In John 6:66, 6, in the bread of life discourse, we're told from that time, many of his what? His disciples, his learners went back and walked with him no more. So it is possible to be a disciple, but not be a born again believer. Now the argument continues, at least by the one camp, that if you are a born again believer, you cannot be ignorant of the third member of the triune Godhead, the Holy Spirit of God. Now the statement, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit, needs a bit of clarification. Now, the first thing we need to take note of is these men were Jews. They were part of John's ministry. And John, like Jesus, John the Baptist, that is, John, like Jesus, went to the Jew first. And he preached the message that God had proclaimed him to preach, and therefore, since the Old Testament is replete with information about the Holy Spirit, it is hardly possible that these men had never heard of the Holy Spirit. After all, as an example, Psalm fifty-one, eleven says, "'Do not cast me away from your presence, "'and do not take,' what? "'Your Holy Spirit from me.'" King David was obviously aware of the person of the Holy Spirit. That tells us the statement cannot be one of ignorance of the existence of the Holy Spirit, but rather the receiving portion that they had not heard of. Now we need to remember something concerning the argument that these men were not yet saved based on their unawareness of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament sense. Now in Acts one eight, Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And this is exactly what happened, the progression we have been following in the course of our studies in the book of Acts. Now, the important part about this is Jesus told his disciples in advance what was going to happen to them they were going to receive power. He told them the purpose of the power. The purpose of the power is to be witnesses. He told them where this power was going to be displayed in Jerusalem first, then in Judea and Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. Now, I want you to think about this scene. And again, We're not trying to force anything into the text, but as human beings who think logically, can you imagine if Jesus had not told the disciples what was coming, the 120 or so who would later gather in the upper room? Could you imagine the experience if all of a sudden cloven tongues of fire settled on them and they began to speak in languages, learned through supernatural means? Would they know that this empowering was so they could be witnesses in Jerusalem Jerusalem, and then on to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. I dare say we could see this scene, therefore, without the front-loaded information as being a very frightening and even confusing experience. So again, in my mind, ignorance of the baptism of the Holy Spirit does not demand or even imply the lack of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, the many even say they were baptized into John's baptism. Now, in Acts 1, 4 to 5, backing up a little bit from Acts 1:8, being assembled together with them, he, Jesus, commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. In other words, I've been talking to you about this all along. And then he noted, for truly, for John truly baptized with what? Water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, Acts one 8 wasn't the first mention of the Holy Spirit by Jesus. John 14, he went into very specific detail concerning the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He told his disciples that the primary ministry is going to be to convict the world of sin, teach them all things, call to remembrance the things that Jesus had taught them. And Jesus here makes a very clear distinction between the baptism of John and the baptism Of Jesus, the difference between the baptism of water and that of the Spirit. Now, two things to consider this morning. You hear? Two things to consider. For those who argue you can be saved and later receive the Holy Spirit and call this event another Pentecost, we need to remember that there are anomalies recorded in Scripture. And Pentecost was a day of the year, it wasn't just an event, it was a a, Fulfilled feast time and it happened one time and that particular day was fulfilled according to Jewish uh, feast days and traditions. Now we need to remember in Hebrews 9.27 that we're told it is appointed unto man once to die and after this comes what? The judgment. So it's appointed unto man once to die, right? The death rate today is still pretty much one to one. For every single birth, there's one death. However, are there exceptions in scripture? Sure, in the Old Testament, Enoch and Elijah both were supernaturally and instantaneously translated into the heavenly realm without ever tasting death. And I'll also remind you that even though the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die, there's a whole generation of people that aren't going to die, and I think we're it. As far as believers go, I should say. Now, I say that for this reason. This is not a second Pentecost. It was a group of 12 men who heard the good news and believed. And I believe that they received the guarantee of their future inheritance in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Yet they had not received the empowering aspect of the Spirit because, to be honest, they wouldn't have known what to do with it. They were far away from Jerusalem in the initial birth of the church and birthplace of the church, I should say. But here they are now under the oversight of the Apostle Paul. And it's curious that this is the very first question he asked of them, which is obviously prompted by the Spirit. Now, we need to remember about this group of 12. They didn't have an Acts 1.8 to read. They didn't have a John 14 to read. They had no way of knowing about the baptism or the empowering aspect of the Holy Spirit. The only thing they knew was what John taught, and that was they needed to repent. Now, these men were like Apollos. They didn't have the whole picture. And like Apollos, they were lacking in their understanding of the person, work, and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't want to get overly dogmatic about this, but I offer this as a possible resolution to the two-camp debate that's literally gone on for centuries. And the fact is, from either side of the argument, let me say this. I don't believe you have everything you're going to get the moment you get saved. And I don't believe that you can get saved and not have the Holy Spirit. So we will have those two takeaways from the two camps. But let me say this. Here's what I do believe. And here's what we can glean accurately from the text. And it says, every Christian should be growing in the power of the Spirit and knowledge of the Word. Every Christian should be growing in the power of the Spirit and knowledge of the Word. In other words, our walk and spiritual growth and biblical awareness is to be continued. And therefore, it is to continue to grow. Now, in 1 Peter 2, 1 to 3, listen to what Peter says. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil, speaking as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may do what? Grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Then he would write in his second epistle in three seventeen and 18, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But, next word, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Somebody say, Isn't it interesting that we have these two passages about growing in the Lord from someone who, when he started, had a very long way to go. The Lord had chosen Peter to preach the first gospel message, and through him, 3,000 souls were added to the church on that uh, Pentecost and spirit-inspired sermon. But Peter didn't start off so well. He often spoke and said things he hadn't thought of yet. And we see Jesus continually uh, correcting him in various ways throughout his early days. So Peter would be one, the fitting one, I believe, to say we ought to all be growing in the power of the spirit and the knowledge of the word. Now listen. I don't think we need to see this group of men as either unsaved or uninhabited by the Holy Spirit in the indwelling sense. Their spiritual power and knowledge of the word was to be continued just like it is in you, just like it is in me. And that's where you say, now let's look at four to seven once again. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people, that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now, the men were about 12 in all. Now, Paul does what Priscilla and Aquila did with Apollos, and they filled in the blanks of the understanding of these men, informing them that John's message was not to become John's disciple. John's message was to become a follower of the one who would come after him, namely Christ Jesus. Now, it is noteworthy that the men were then baptized, even though they had been baptized by John. Now, some say this is proof that they were not saved. Now, I would say this is proof that baptism into Christ Jesus is a conscious decision not something done outside of your relationship with them. You have to have full knowledge of what it means if you want to make an argument doctrinally from what this text is saying. Now, this is the only recorded instance in Scripture of a rebaptism. Somebody that's been baptized before. And let me just say this, kind of as a side note, since we are in the verses we're in, infant baptism is not something that is scriptural. Infant baptism doesn't save anybody believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. We are baptized as an outward sign of an inward work. So if we're going to make a case for re-baptism, it would be an adult Christian or a Christian at the age of understanding making a decision to publicly declare their commitment to Christ through baptism, which symbolizes death to self and new life in him. So If you were baptized as a child and have now become a born again Christian, you should be baptized in water. Amen. Amen. Now, in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. In the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Now, here's something that's important for us to note. The word used concerning baptism in water and the word used concerning baptism in the spirit is the same Greek word. It's baptizo, uh, if you'd like to look it up or know what it is, but there's nothing linguistically to distinguish one from the other. So therefore we have to allow context to tell us what exactly is being said. The context of Acts 19, 1 to 10 is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now remember what Jesus said back in Acts 1-5 that we read a few moments ago. He made a distinction between his baptism and John's baptism. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now I say this for this reason. Could the baptism in our verses be the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And there aren't actually two separate events here in these paired verses, not water baptism followed by the baptism of the spirit. Now, I say that for two reasons. One, because it refutes the idea that they could not be saved and receive the holy uh, power of the Holy Spirit until they have been water baptized. Water baptism doesn't save you. Amen? Water baptism doesn't save you. Now, these, uh, secondly, I should say, these men, if these men were true yet uninformed believers, it dismisses the idea that all true believers at their regeneration are going to speak in tongues. Now, we also need to note it is not establishing the laying on of hands as a way where the spirit is imparted upon a believer, even though this was something that we saw that was common in Paul's ministry practices. Now we see this Pentecost type experience, even though it is a repeat of Pentecost, actually repeated four times in the book of Acts. We saw it first in Jerusalem with the believers, uh, the Jewish believers, and we saw it with the Samaritans through Philip we saw it with the Gentiles through Peter, and here these dispersed Jews are having the same experience through Paul. Now, we also note that when Peter preached the first spirit-empowered message uh, after being baptized in the Spirit, that the event makes no mention of tongues and prophesying. Looking back on Peter's sermon in Acts 2:40 40 to 47, we're told that with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and speaking tongues and interpretation. In the, Is that what it says? No. In the breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done to the apostles. Now. All who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church, how frequently? Daily, those being saved. Now, listen, there are people today who when they are baptized in water, they come up from the water and speak in an unknown language. Now, we need to understand, first of all, the only unknown part about the language is unknown to the person who is speaking it. And the truth is, the word that's used to, uh, to describe the gift of tongues means to speak in a known language. Now, that is a language unlearned by the person through study. It's something that's instantaneously granted through supernatural means. And let me just say this and pause for a moment. I am not a cessationist. I do not believe the gifts of the Spirit ceased with the death of the apostles or the closing of the canon of Scripture. The gifts of the Spirit are for today. As a matter of fact, the gifts are required in order to reach the world with the good news of the gospel. And therefore, we're not talking about the end of the gifts. We're just saying there are a lot of churches today. It happened to my wife when she first got saved. And she actually got saved when we were separated many, many years ago. And they took her in a back room and tried to get her to speak in tongues. And they were trying to force her to do it. Well, listen, if the Spirit's going to give you that gift, then that's how you're going to get it. It's not going to be by a group of people in a room trying to force you to start saying, she wrote a Honda, she wrote a Honda, she wrote a Honda. Now... Listen, as I said, to speak in tongues is to speak in a known language learned through supernatural means. And therefore, we're not establishing that if you're baptized in the spirit, you're going to speak with tongues. I guess I could have just said that. and We could have moved on, right? Now, we're also told here that they prophesied. That doesn't mean they foretold the future. It means they uttered praise unto God. Now again, not trying to be dogmatic about this, but there is an undeniable truth in our middle verses we need to recognize. And it's just this, and it's part of the progression we've studied thus far. Listen this morning. Here's the second thing. Repentance is essential to walking in power. Repentance is essential to walking in power. We need to note that Paul didn't discredit The baptism of John. He didn't say, hey, listen, that was silly for you to be baptized by John. That's ridiculous. It meant nothing. He didn't go down that road at all. And many would rather debate the issue as to what is meant in our verses. So we can just settle on the fact that John's baptism was not illegitimate. It was incomplete. But we cannot ignore the progression here that is first mentioned that they were baptized into John's baptism, which was a baptism of repentance. And remember, baptism by definition means to submerge or emerge. And from that, we could understand by their own confession that these men were fully committed to what John preached. And in Matthew 3, 1 to 3, we're told, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, What? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Then we're told in Mark 1, 14 and 15, that after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee and preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, what? Repent and believe in the gospel. John preached repentance. And after his arrest, Jesus preached repentance. And after Pentecost, Peter preached repentance. Now, we're told in response to Peter's message in Acts 2, 38 and 39, that when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now listen close for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off. In other words, this will be true throughout the course of church history. As many as the Lord our God will call. Now, we see this very same progression in our verses this morning. We have the baptism of John mentioned, which is repentance. And then it's followed by the empowering ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, I think we've all heard, I think many of us have even thought And I know it's certainly been said many times. Why doesn't the church today operate in the same power that it did in the book of Acts? Now, let me first say this. It does. The Spirit's still moving today, right? God is still healing today, right? God is still saving today. He's still adding to the church daily those being saved, right? The church is still breaking bread every chance we get. Right, We're still having communion. Are you guys still here? The church is operating the same way it already has. Here's the problem is that there are many today within the church who say repentance is unnecessary and it's not part of the gospel message. Even though John preached it, Jesus preached it, Peter preached it, Paul certainly preached it. All those who preached and proclaimed the word of God taught it is necessary to repent from sin. Now, in the progression in our text, it implies, I believe, that repentance opens the door for the flow of power through our lives like nothing else. I want you to think about something that Jesus said and did in Matthew 11:20, 20, when he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not what? They didn't repent. And Revelation 2.20, which we need to remember something. I think we often get sideways, or a lot of people do. The only direct address that Jesus gave to the church, other than the mention of Peter and the gates of hell or Hades not prevailing against it, are the letters to the seven churches. He was addressing Jews in the Sermon on the Mount. And he was addressing Jews in the Olivet Discourse, even though I believe that there is some content related to the church age within it. But Jesus came to the Jew first, right? So when he addressed the church, he addressed the church openly and directly in the letters to the seven churches, including the letter he wrote to Thyatira. Revelation 2, 20 to 24, Jesus said, say Jesus said, nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel. Now, most believe that's a title and not an actual name of a woman. I mean, who's going to name their kid Jezebel, right? It's kind of like naming your son Judas. It just doesn't happen. She calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and seduces my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Then Jesus said, I gave her time to do what? I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death. Or he'll bring her ministry to an end. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now, Jesus' words to Thyatira, Jesus' words against Chorazin, Tyre, and Sidon in his earthly and his earthly ministry headquarters of Capernaum should make it very clear that repentance is is still part of the gospel message. And it is therefore essential to walking in Holy Spirit power. Somebody say, now let's wrap it up. And really we could have ended our time at verse seven, but we want to read what's before and after. We already studied uh, Acts 18 last time together. So we'll pick this up, kind of a transition set of verses into what happens afterwards. Now in verse eight, we're told, that he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months. Reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. He being Paul, obviously. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And that's not Tyrannosaurus Rex, by the way. And this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now remember, Greek is not an ethnicity. It was those with the Greek thought process, which was dominant in the day. It's a term similar uh, to the Jews uh, speaking of the Gentiles, simply re- referring to non-Jews. These were people who had a Greek mindset that were predominant in the day. Now, there's an interesting story I ran across this week, and it's about the Battle of Waterloo in, uh, while England waited silently for the outcome, wondering if uh, Wellington was going to defeat Napoleon, because if he couldn't defeat Napoleon, there was a rather bleak future uh, that awaited the British. Now, from the top of the Winchester Cathedral there was a semaphore, which is a flag system of communicating uh, letters. And those who were waiting and watching, looking for the message as to how the battle was going against Napoleon and his army, the letters began to be communicated and the flags run up and down the pole that said, Wellington defeated. And then suddenly the fog rolled in and there was no further possible transmission. So the word that Wellington was defeated by Napoleon spread like wildfire throughout England. The country was filled with despair and people prepared for the worst and the direct invasion of Napoleon into their beloved land. But later the fog lifted, lifted, the sun came out and the full message was revealed, which says Wellington, defeated the enemy. And listen, that was good news, obviously for them. And this is good news for us today as well. Our enemy has been defeated by Christ on the cross, resurrected and ascended. Amen. And Paul went in to the synagogue and reasoned with them as was his practice once again. And some didn't believe and had hardened hearts, but others believed. Some spoke evil of the way and others came to saving faith. Now, Ephesus' geographic position as a gateway between Europe, the Middle East and North Africa made it kind of, and it was referred to as the treasure house of Asia. This was the home of materialism as well as ambition for progress, that is. Now, it was also interesting that this was the home of the temple to Artemis or Diana. We may be familiar with and We'll meet uh, that phrase in a uh, couple of weeks. It was home to one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. This temple to Artemis had 127 marble pillars and each rose 60 feet high. And it was covered with a beautiful mosaic ceiling, many of the pillars were inlaid with gold and rare gems. Now get this, just to give you some scope, the temple to Artemis was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. It was a huge temple. It had a canopy that covered an area of 425 feet in length and 200 feet In And it housed the image of Artemis who supposedly had fallen from the stars. And the temple was a site or the site and center for a thriving cult of fertility worship. And Ephesus had become basically a stronghold of superstition and the dark arts. It was a cesspool for the occult, so to speak. It was to this city that Paul would later write, in Ephesians 6:12 we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against rulers against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil or wickedness in the heavenly places therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to what stand now as always Paul started his preaching ministry in the synagogue And in Ephesus, he had one of his longest opportunities lasting for three months. And he employed his usual uh, method of reasoning, or literally it can be translated as dialoguing from the scriptures, thus proving Jesus is the Christ. And as usual, some believed, others were hard-hearted and rejected the message. Now when persecution seemed to be imminent, Paul and his followers made arrangements to continue the dialogue in a rented hall that was known by the name of a local philosopher, Tyrannus. Now that word actually means tyrant. And uh, one Bible commentator, uh, Richard Longnecker wrote, since it is difficult, except in bleak moments of parenthood, to think of any parent naming his or her child tyrant, this must have been a nickname given to the man by his students. And this is quite likely, obviously. And Paul preached in the school of a tyrant for two years, resulting in all who dwelt in Asia, hearing the word of the Lord. Now, this brings us to the last thing that is to be continued, not just in us, but also through us. And that's this. Here's the last consideration this morning. Listen, there will never be a better way to reach the world for Christ than preaching the word. There will never be a better way to reach the world for Christ than preaching the word. Now listen, whether you believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the second blessing as it's often referred to as being distinct from the indwelling or not, if you believe that you get all you're going to get at the moment of salvation or not, the world is not going to be saved by our interpretation of a debatable issue. The world is going to be saved by preaching Christ and him crucified. And in Romans ten nine to 13, Paul would say, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you might be saved. You what? You will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Somebody say amen. Hallelujah. Something. Now. Paul would write in the last chapter of his last letter before his execution to Timothy in 4, 1 to 5, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to what? Fables. But you, or in contrast, you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Listen, church, saving faith comes by hearing the word of God and the word of God and the God of the word is calling men everywhere to repent. That means to change the mind, which will in turn change the life. And since Paul was always preaching Christ and him crucified, this is the change of mind we're seeking to bring about for people to change their minds about the person of Christ, his death, resurrection, and ascension, as well as his deity. Now listen, here's why this is important this morning. Being inclusive isn't going to save the world. Being tolerant as the world defines it isn't going to save the world. Being accepting of other religions as being demanded of us today isn't going to change the world. I cannot believe how many of these dumb coexist stickers are on cars these days. And if, if I insulted you and you have one, go take it off and I won't insult you anymore. We already coexist. They're not asking us to coexist. They're asking us to cohabitate. And to recognize that one is as valid as the other. Listen, there is only one way to be saved and thus get to heaven. And that's through Jesus Christ. You can't do it through Islam. You can't do it through Buddhism. You can't do it through any of these religious systems. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as he's presented in scripture. And you will be Listen, denying the infallibility, infallibility and inspiration of Scripture isn't going to save anybody. The only way to reach the world for Christ is preach the Word. And saving faith comes through hearing the Word of God. Now listen, this is to be continued until the end of the age. And therefore, the empowering of the Holy Spirit to be witnesses is necessary until the end of the age. And therefore, repentance from sin... That power may flow through you is necessary until the end of the age. And every Christian in every age of church history should be growing in power and their knowledge of God's word. Now, listen, if you're iffy on this, it's too late. I already signed us all up. We're going all in for this. Amen. We are going to continue to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. We are going to seek to do the work of the evangelist and reach out to those who are lost and perishing around us. And listen, everybody has their own mission field. It's called your neighborhood. For some of you, it's even closer than that. It's called your own family. People that need to hear of Jesus have to have the word preached to them because only the word of God has within it the capacity to save The soul and therefore the message of Christ, the message, the exclusive claims of Jesus is what we are to be proclaiming. Fables are really popular today. Teaching things that make people feel good about themselves and their fallen condition is really popular today. We want none of it. We're going to preach the word, which has the capacity to change people's lives and eternal destinies by the power of the Holy Spirit, taking up residence in their their lives and making them into witnesses and evangelists for Christ as well. Listen, I encourage you to do it all the time. Get out there and preach Jesus. Get out there and tell people about Jesus. Get out there and just say his name. If that's all you can muster, listen, you have just spoken with authority, the only name that has the ability to save the human soul. If that's all you can say is Jesus, I can't think of a better word to pick out of all that we have within our vocabulary. Just say Jesus to somebody. Maybe it'll spark up a conversation. Maybe if you're a little more bold, you can go down a little bit further and say, hey, Are you ready for what happens after this life? You know, there's some old phrases I think that are very appropriate and they've been cast aside because they're deemed to be archaic. But, hey, I think we need to be asking people, are you ready to meet your maker? You know why? Because they're gonna. Forgive me for saying gonna, but it just seemed to roll better. People are going to meet their maker, amen? Someday, every knee, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow and say that Jesus Christ is the Lord. But listen, many of those who are going to make that confession are going to do so after it's too late. They'll do so at the great white throne judgment. They'll be forced to bow and acknowledge what they denied their whole life. Listen, there are no after-death opportunities for salvation. As limbo is taught by the Catholic Church, that's not true. There's no purgatory, that's not a biblical doctrine. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. And there's a couple of anomalies along the way, two in the Old Testament and a whole generation that perhaps today could be snatched away and taken out of here. But as for everybody else, once they face death, that's it. There's no opportunity to be saved. And I say this to you because we need a greater urgency than we currently have for those who are lost and dying around us. People need Jesus. People find Jesus through the preaching of the word, not fables, not feel good sermons, not storytelling, preaching the word of God, undiluted and uncompromised and unashamedly. I say, let's do it. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, you do it. That's good. You do it and we'll watch. No, no, no. You do it too. You fulfill your ministry by doing the work of the evangelist. Remember what we read in Acts? God added to the church how often? Daily, not just Sunday, Wednesday, but God added to the church daily those who were being saved. You know what that means? That means every saint was evangelizing. So that's your role too. And you know, I know people say, it's just not my personality. Well, I can't find that in Mark sixteen fifteen or Matthew twenty eight nineteen. I can't see any room for personality in there. Go to the world and preach the gospel unless you're an introvert. Go to the world and preach the gospel unless you're not comfortable with that. It's a directive. It's a command. Go. Go to the world and preach the gospel. So, listen, you don't have to be a biblical scholar to tell somebody that Jesus loves them. As a matter of fact, the stories continue to roll. Uh, We keep hearing stories from uh, Nagme uh, Panahi about how many Muslims are coming to faith in Christ. And I've heard this for many, many years, and I continue to hear it today. And you know why they're coming to Christ? Many of them are coming to Christ because somebody told them that God loved them, which is a completely foreign concept to them. Allah is one to be feared. Allah is one who is going to weigh your good and bad works at the end of days. And those whose good works outweigh their bad are going to enter enter into paradise and the rest are going to hell. There's no love there whatsoever. So for them to hear that God loves them is just simply unfathomable. And so when they hear that this God manifests himself in the person of Jesus Christ to demonstrate his own love for them, While they were yet sinners, it's just too much. They have to come to faith. So listen, just tell people God loves them. Jesus loves you. I mean, there was an old adage for a long time. Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Do you remember when that used to be true? It's still true, right? So it's really not that hard. Just mention his name. Tell somebody that God loves them and let God do the rest He's given you his spirit as a, a guarantee of your future inheritance. And he has given you his power by which you can be a witness. So with that said, go. Not right now, but I mean after the last song. Go to the world and do what? Preach the gospel to who? Every creature. And Father, we are grateful for your word this morning. And Lord, whatever is the reality that is found in this text Lord, our takeaways are undeniable. We should all be growing in our power as we repent from our sin. We should all be growing and increasing in our knowledge of you through our careful study of the word. We should all be telling people about Jesus by the power we've received when we received your spirit. Whether it was a baptism of the spirit or an indwelling of the spirit and nothing else. All of that, Lord, just takes away from our primary mission, which is telling people about Jesus. Help us, Lord, to be about the one thing that really matters, and that is Christ and him crucified. The power of the gospel, able to save men's souls. Help us as you were to be about our Father's business all the days of our lives until you come to take us home. We thank you for this chapter this morning. We give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. And all God's people responded by saying, Amen.